Good health is a crown worn by the healthy that only the ill can see. Your health really is your wealth. Join us for the next hour as we explore disease and attaining and maintaining good health. This is Dischem Medical Monday, brought to you by Dischem, pharmacists who care. Welcome to this Dischem Medical Monday. My name is Kathy Kayla and I will be your host for the next hour. Dischem Medical Monday really is a space where we speak to the best and the brightest in medical science, research, practice, and uh, we get to the bottom line, we get the best possible inf- information from them. And it gives me great delight today to welcome Dr. Jack Cussell. He's a pediatrician in private practice, and uh, he is a, he's, the man is a legend, but he's also very, very smart. Um, so I thought, well, let's get him in. And uh, let's talk about something that's very much um, in the news, and that is the measles outbreak. So welcome, Dr. Jack Hussle. How are you? Thank you very much, Cathy. Just just at the outset, let me stress what my philosophy is in medicine. It goes back to our graduation ceremony in November 1960 when we graduated as doctors. And the late Professor Gear was the Dean of Medicine. He was also the co-founder of the polio vaccine, and he was one of the greatest physicians on this earth. He was, at, he was the head of the uh, uh, Medi- Medical Council. Uh, Professor Gear gave us a lecture before the graduation in which the subject of the lecture was the art of medicine is knowing when not to prescribe. That was his subject. And little did I realize that over the next 59 years I was going to learn this painfully in some cases, but to my great advantage in other cases. And it has always been my philosophy in medicine. Now, when I say that, I don't mean to be disdainful of people that do prescribe and other people that may have other methods of treatment. If I offend anybody in the due process, I apologize. It's not meant to be offensive. It's merely meant to state what my philosophy is in medicine. The art of medicine is knowing when not to prescribe. I think that that's very true in terms of, uh, if it's okay with you, if I can share a personal story. Yeah. Um, my daughter went on her first bout of uh, antibiotics at the age of six months, and I thought, how can a child who's freshly born, freshly freshly half-baked, you know, how can it be that she already needs antibiotics and her body's dealing with infections? I understand that that's also how the immune system works. But um, by the time she was two, she had been on numerous courses of antibiotics, my, my son as well. And I understand that a lot of doctors will prescribe precautionary. I understand where people have an um an immune system that is perhaps compromised in some way. But well, how, how else do we build an immunity? So what you gave, you gave amazing advice, and I'm going to ask you to give that advice um, in a little while. But let's just talk about the immune system. The immune system is, nothing has improved on what Hashem has given us, all of us on this earth. And the immune system consists of four main organs in the body the spleen, the liver, the glands, and the bone marrow. 
These organs get a message that there's a substance in the body that doesn't belong, be it a bacteria, be it a virus, be it a tumor, be it whatever it is, it doesn't belong over there. And therefore that immune system must now do something to get rid of that substance. How does it do it? It fires off millions and millions of tiny protein particles called antibodies. These antibodies are only visible under the electron microscope. They're not visible to the naked eye, but they're sticky. They stick to each other. And off they go in the blood in a very simple way, which Hashem has designed for us. These sticky antibodies then coat the offending bacteria or virus and stop it from breathing, just like if we were had a gag tied round our nose and mouth, we wouldn't be able to take in oxygen and breathe out carbon dioxide. So the, so the offending germ, the virus, or the bacteria gets coated by the sticky antibody substance, and it now cannot take in oxygen, it cannot breathe out carbon dioxide, and it dies. This is, funnily enough, what is known as natural immunity. This is how the body immunizes itself against any offending substances. And nothing on this earth, be it antibiotics, vaccines, whatever you like, is cleverer than Hashem in designing our bodies. Natural immunity. Now, this is the way that Adam got better when he got a cold. It's also the way that Eve got better when she caught the same cold. And it's the way that a lot of us still get better today uh, when we get colds and flu and various other things. It's known as natural immunity. Now, how do you know that this natural immunity is taking place? When the body produces antibodies, the main sign of this is temperature. And An increase con- in temperature and body temperature? Increase in body temperature. And contrary to what many people think, Temperature is actually a very good sign. Very seldom will anything happen to you if you have a temperature. But lots will happen to you if you don't get a temperature. Let me explain that. You will counter it by saying that temperature is dangerous. You must break the temperature. You must get it down to normal. Why? Why do people insist on doing that if it's well, good Well, they for insist you? on doing it because they have the misapprehension that convulsions will damage you and there will be serious side effects from temperature. Well, these serious side effects and convulsions only occur by some of the abnormal things that you do in trying to bring down the temperature. First of all, temperature must never be brought down precipitously. If you've got a temperature of 40 or 41 and you put the person in a cold bath or turn ice on him, and bring the temperature down to 36. The moment you remove that, the temperature will immediately shoot up to 40, and that's when you get convulsions. So remember one thing about a temperature. The normal temperature under the arm with the skin thermometer is 36 to 37 in all children and adults. If it goes above that and goes to 38.5, you very seldom have to do anything except push plenty fluids and undress the patient, not use any abnormal methods. If it goes above 38.5, you can then use your antipyretics, your panada, your calpol, your neurofen, your lotum, 
your Voltaren, your Impipet suppositories, your Panado suppositories, not to give the person a normal temperature, but simply to control the temperature at 38.5 to 40. Because if you give him a normal temperature, you're destroying his immunity. You're destroying his antibody response. So if we give, if we give, uh, as you say, antipyretics at that at that stage, and you know your panados, your calpols, your neurofens, to bring the temperature down, will it not bring the temperature down to what is normal and no, disable it won't, the, the you've immune still system? Still got the offending germ that needs to be eliminated. Right. And in the case of the viruses, this can take five to seven days to eliminate the virus, and you'll have a temperature for five to seven days. In bacterial infection, the period is much less, but in viruses it can be very prolonged. So that is the meaning of temperature. Now take it the other way round. Where you have a patient that doesn't have an immune response, the classic disease in the world at the moment is the disease called AIDS. The word AIDS stands for autoimmune deficiency syndrome. Your self-immunity is deficient. And why is it deficient? Because the AIDS virus has poisoned your antibody-producing cells in your spleen, your liver, your glands, and your bone marrow. So now the AIDS patient gets TB. He has no way of producing antibodies to TB. His cells are poisoned, and he doesn't get a temperature as a result of his TB. And so he runs along for three to six months, without a temperature, without any reaction, without an immune response, and eventually dies of tuberculosis. There's something that is quite closer to home. It's a germ called the meningococcus, which can affect the most elite and can affect the poorest. It's a deadly germ which can kill you within six hours. And why does it kill you within six hours? Because from start to finish, from the time it enters your body to the time you die, you have your immune system attacked by the meningococcus. It goes straight for your spleen, your liver, your glands, and your bone marrow, eliminates the antibody-producing cells, and you have no defense against the meningococcus, and you will die of meningococcal septicemia. Uh, How common is it? It's not common at the moment, but it comes in crops. And fortunately, a vaccine has just been produced against meningococcus, which is called Menactra vaccine, M-E-N-A-C-T-R-A. And this is one of the vaccines that should be given to every single person under the age of 50. Would something like that be available at Dischem? It's clearly available at Dischem. Dischem do it themselves. Okay. So all you've got to do is get a prescription from your doctor and you'll be given Menactra and you'll be saved from from a horrible fate if you do have meningococcus in, into your body. Is there anyone who shouldn't have the Menactra vaccine? Not really, except severely compromised individuals, people that are on chemotherapy for severe cancers, right. people that have no immune response to start with. There, the Menactra vaccine may be contraindicated, but really there are no contraindications. It's not a live vaccine. Once we're talking about vaccines, um, I do want to digress just a little bit. Well, one, of, one of the big stories at the moment is, is about measles. All right. Can we, can we please go there? Yeah. Okay, good. You see, there's much that's been said about vaccination, and everything that happens in medicine is like a seesaw. 
At first, everybody is enamored with the thing. The seesaw is up at the top. Then everybody starts reporting the side effects, and everybody stops using it, and the seesaw hits the bottom. And eventually, the seesaw hits the middle, which is where it should be with vaccines as well. Vaccines, with ever-increasing frequency today, are being shown, some of them, not all of them, and I'm not meaning to run down the drug companies or any of these people that bring out the vaccines. It's purely my personal opinion. And if you do feel that you want to give those vaccines, you're very free to do it. I can't condemn you. But my philosophy is that you should save vaccination for the diseases that can potentially kill you. And those diseases are very few. They are TB, which is a great killer in South Africa, the BCG vaccine, polio, which is an even greater killer if it breaks loose, measles, which is a killer amongst the better class communities and certainly a high cause of morbidity, hepatitis, the various types A, B and C, which are now implicated in the causation of liver cancer, which you certainly don't want to have, meningitis vaccine, and that is it. What about human papillomavirus? A papillomavirus should be given, yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Except that in, in Jewish patients who have, who mostly have as their partners circumcised males, the incidence of cancer of the cervix is very, very low, if at all present. But nevertheless, you never know what hate. Okay, hold on a second, hold on a second. (laughs) That was a joke, right? (laughs) No, did you say, did you say that in, in Jewish males, cancer of the cervix, who are circumcised, that Jewish males cancer who are is not prevalent. Very seldom get oh, cancer. Oh, they're partners. The okay, I didn't hear the partners. partners. I heard like in Jewish males no. the cervix. No, okay. No, not that. <laughs> so what does it leave you with? It leaves you with a whole string of vaccines now which are punted by the drug firms, by the vaccine agencies, and by everybody else. It leaves you with chickenpox vaccine. Why is that not a desirable vaccine as far as I'm concerned? Because our bobbers and our grandmothers used to take us to children with chickenpox to give us chickenpox. Because in That's a child. It's true, actually. It's true. In a child, it's very easy to get chickenpox and to be immune to chickenpox. And it doesn't do any harm except cause you to scratch and itch and occasionally leave you with a few scars. So if you now have chickenpox vaccine, you're, Im- you're immune against chickenpox. Well, we don't know how long, but when you reach adolescence and adulthood, you may suddenly become non-immune. And when that happens, chickenpox in an adult is a very, very serious disease, which can kill you and give you shingles and all sorts of things. So why do it in the first place? Get your chickenpox. As far as mumps is concerned... The old Bobamaisa, if you know a bit of Yiddish, used to be that if a man couldn't father children, it was because he had mumps that affected his testes. Nothing could be further from the truth. Really? In 59 years of practicing medicine, I've never yet seen mumps or chitis affecting fertility. I have, I have not had a single case in my practice. So I would say that the incidence is infinitesimal and certainly not a reason for giving mumps vaccine for nothing. So then you get rubella vaccine. 
Rubella vaccine, admittedly German measles is a very serious disease in the general population. If it hits a pregnant mother, it can give you all sorts of fetal abnormalities. But for heaven's sake, the male is not going to fall, fall pregnant to start with. So rubella vaccine is not indicated. And even in other people, rubella vaccine is not indicated. If a person reaches the childbearing age and is still susceptible to rubella, hasn't got immunity, then by all means give them the chicken, uh, the rubella vaccine. What is rubella? Rubella is German measles. German measles. Okay. Then you come to the other more controversial ones. You come to rotavirus. You come to Prevenar. You know, you come to the radio adverts which say don't hesitate, vaccinate. One in every, one, one child dies every minute of pneumococcal vaccine, pneumococcal disease. That's is that true? Pre, that's Prevenar. Is that true? It is true. But one where, child where, dies where, every where minute of pneumococcal. True? Where is it true? It's mostly true in the disadvantaged areas. If you wanted to give Prevenar to all the HIV sufferers, if you wanted to give Prevenar to all the people that live in Orange Farm and in Kailicha, sure, you'd be doing the right thing. If you also want to give Prevenar to all the people whose immune systems have been poisoned by antibiotics, you're also doing the right thing. But if you're doing the right thing and allowing Hashem to control your immunity, Prevenar is not indicated, and I myself have reached the age of 81, and I've never had a Prevenar vaccine. When last were you on antibiotics? And I was lost on antibiotics, I can't remember. As far as I'm concerned, I've never had an antibiotic in my life, and I'm still here. And doing quite well, apparently. <laughs> doing quite well. And if you want another analogy, take yourself to the Crocodile Park at Sun City where an African gentleman gives you a lecture on the crocodile. Now, the crocodile very seldom lives under 100 years of age. He usually goes well below, well above 100 years of age. And why does he live like that? There are three, three main reasons. The one reason is he only eats once a year. He doesn't press three times a day. See, that's the one reason. The other reason is he gets no diseases. He's got a completely normal, well-developed immune system. He doesn't get fed on antibiotics. He never has an antibiotic in his life. He also doesn't work out at gym. He occasionally has a workout <laughs> with his jaw on somebody. But takes no carbs. <laughs> takes no carbs. <laughs> so we in, act, we, in fact, go a long way towards destroying ourselves by our lifestyles. And it couldn't be more correct in my case where I saw the first case of coronary thrombosis in an African man, African person, I'm not sure if it's a man or a woman, in 1954. Yeah. There was one case reported at Baraguanath. Today the incidence of coronary thrombosis at Chris Hani Baraguanath, Charlotte Mateka and the state hospitals in African and disadvantaged patients and generally disadvantaged patients, not only African patients, is one in four, 25%. So that's 100% lifestyle. So it's... I mean, that's it, what it indicates. It is lifestyle. It has very little to do with the genetics. It's the way we live, the way we destroy our engines. Our engines, our metabolism is consists... We metabolize three main types of food. That's how we live. In the car engine, the car engine 
uses petrol, and it burns it to provide itself with energy. We metabolize carbohydrates, fats, and protein in order to provide ourselves with energy. And all the three biggest killers of mankind are the diseases of our metabolism, of our carbohydrate, fat, or protein cycle. If the disease occurs in the carbohydrate cycle, the famous disease is insulin deficiency, diabetes. You cannot get sugar through the cells and you can't absorb a molecule of sugar, so you you get diabetes, either type 1 or type 2. If it's a disease of fat metabolism, a man called Krebs got the Nobel Prize in Medicine in 1950, just before I started medicine, for the simple statement that fat was burnt in the flame of carbohydrate. In other words, if you don't break your carbohydrates down properly, you won't break your fats down properly. That's profound, actually. Nobody nobody talks about that. Yeah, but little do they know that the American Journal of Medicine has just published an article which had said that nobody will get a coronary thrombosis unless they have a preceding disorder of carbohydrate metabolism. And where does that all start? start? It starts with the way you feed your child. Who says that you should give your child three meals of porridge a day and load them with carbohydrate and exhaust your enzymes? The ground for coronary thrombosis has been proven today is laid in the first year of life with abnormal feeding of the baby. Gosh, that's interesting. And how we add sugar to everything. Yes. You see, everything. So if you mess up your carbohydrate cycle, your fats then can't be metabolized. They can't enter the en- engine. And therefore the fats go off on an abnormal pathway and they start depositing in your arteries and they're the precursors of your high blood pressure, your coronary thrombosis, your cerebral thrombosis, your heart attacks, and everything that attacks you later on in life. It won't help at the age of 40 to start riding a bicycle or going to vitality gym. You've got to watch out for it at birth and the way you feed the baby. Don't overload the baby with carbohydrates, and don't make a baby overweight at the first year of life. You know, the bobbers climb knuckles from the fact that the child weighs. Look at the polkas and look, look at, at the... At the, the yeah. <laughs> that person has a 50% greater chance of developing coronary thrombosis, atheroma, cerebral thrombosis, strokes, high blood pressure and diabetes by the age of 40, simply by the fact that you've overfed him in the first year of life. What happens if the mother's milk is very, very rich? I mean, I've, I've got a friend who you, has you particularly fat babies. You can never anybody with mother's milk. It'll all equate itself. Mother's milk is safe. And therefore, don't do all the mashuganer things that some people do. Your immune system, your body, is only meant to take milk in the first six, six months of life. Otherwise, Hashem would have presented you with a set of teeth at birth, the same as the horse, the foal, the lamb, They eat from the word go. We don't, as humans, eat from the word go. And therefore, we're not meant to have solids from the word go. All sorts of of things have been done, and solids have been introduced early, but this generally is a mistake. And it's a mistake from the allergic point of view, because your body is like a computer. It won't be primed to mother's milk. Nothing will happen. But if you start to give abnormal substances in the first three to six months of life, 
that sort of person can be made to suffer from allergies for the rest of their lives because you've primed the computer to an allergic response to whatever you're giving them. Don't start solids early. I'm Kathy Kaler. This is the Discam Medical Monday. My guest is Dr. Jack Cussell. He is a pediatrician in private practice, an incredibly, incredibly um, experienced, wise doctor. In fact, he was my pediatrician when I was about four or five years old. And uh, when other doctors were saying, telling my mother she was neurotic, he said, your child has pneumonia. And I actually did. So, uh, yeah, he became my children and this is just my personal <laughs> my personal connection i'm putting it out there <laughs> but uh unfortunately we aren't live today so uh you can't send through any questions and i'm sure that's very frustrating for you and i do apologize but uh if you want to send through questions i will pick them up after the show and i'll and answer I'll, them with pleasure why by Kathy. isn't he a lovely man <laughs> <laughs> so dr castle when when we look back at childhood, childhood is not just a time where we are growing and setting the foundations for future learning. We are also setting the foundations for future life, for our health, our, our, the foundations for our health actually in future life, whether it is exposure to the sun. I mean, research is showing that exposure and burning in early childhood is resulting in skin cancers Minimum later on in life. Very definitely so. So it, it's probably it's true what you're saying about, you know, feeding children, overfeeding babies. In your mind and in your experience, can you please share with me what does a healthy diet look like for a one-year-old? A healthy diet for a one-year-old, first of all, consists of no preservatives. No preservatives whatsoever. Everything should be fresh or freshly produced. You should not... There's different opinions on this, but the eating of meat, even though I am a meat eater, the eating of meat is probably not wise. So the, the vegetarians are more fortunate because there's a lot of research today which supports the theory that your malignancies and your cancers of the bowel are directly related to some of the abnormal fats in meat that we eat, particularly, well, I won't say what type of meat, but... Uh, Grain-fed, grain-fed protein, yes, basically. Yeah. And that could also be fish. And also, you know, I, I once gave a talk on diet... Kashrut and what we don't, what some people don't believe. Funnily enough, Kashrut is now being proved to be the correct way to go, showing you that Hashem in his wisdom and what he wrote in the Torah, he wrote that you certain, you shouldn't eat certain things in a pasha of about four weeks ago. What are the certain things you shouldn't eat? The one is encrustations. Fish that don't have scales and that don't swim in the open sea. And why? Because the New England Journal of Medicine has just published a statistical survey to show that the incidence of cancer of the bowel and the gastrointestinal tract is 70% higher in people that eat prawns, crayfish, calamari, octopus, and all those things that we regard as trafe. Well, your crustaceans, I mean, those are really the kidneys of the sea. They, yeah. they are responsible for taking all the dreck out of the yes, sea. They, they right. clean, they, they're the they, filters. They Why would you want to eat that? 
So if you want to sit down and eat 12 prawns and enjoy it, just remember what the implications. <laughs> just remember what the implications might be. It has nothing to do with going to hell, with kashrut, or anything else that Hashem may punishing you with. You're punishing yourself. In the same way, the abnormal meats that we're not supposed to eat, leaving aside the vein in the leg of lamb that uh, is related to Jacob and Esau. Leave that apart, and in fact, in many parts of the world, especially in France, they're now taking out the Safina Spain and making the leg of lamb kosher. But Why? Because. Uh, I mean, is it worth the effort? It's worth the effort. But what I'm talking about are the meats that have abnormal concentrations of fat and cholesterol that are very bad for you. And that, unfortunately, is fillet steak, rum steak. Uh, certain types of entricot steak, so stick to what Judaism tells you to eat, ribeye steak, the steak from the ribs. They are not, that's not dangerous. So there again, there's a distinct correlation between what we eat, cholesterol, and what we suffer from later on in life. Many of the malignancies are linked to the foods that we eat. The Indians, tend to get an increased incidence of cancer of the bowel. Not not difficult to understand. They, they, they have curry and chilies and spices every day of their lives, and they wear out their protective enzymes that protect them against cancer of the bowel. I don't know if we're not rushed for time. I'll give you a brief overview of cancer and how cancer probably occurs. You only have to go to the Sheba Medical Center in Eretz Israel, which is leading the world now in cancer research. Why are they leading the world in cancer research? Because they've come down to the root cause of cancer. Which is? The root cause of cancer, Jews were never allowed to do post-mortems on themselves. It's against the Jewish religion. So the Sheba Medical Center borrowed, the, borrowed articles in the Lancet, which showed that in people over 90 years of age that died of accidental causes, not cancer, those people, when they did autopsies on them, found occult cancers in the brain, the lung, the liver, the breast, the prostate. What do you mean? Uh, what do you mean by that? that, that occult they had... cancers mean they were encapsulated cancers. They hadn't spread. They were present. But cancer was there. Something was holding that cancer in check. Hmm. Hashem had given you a way of vaccinating yourself against cancer. Huh. Your own natural antibodies that keeps the cancer in check, keeps it from spreading. Right. So why do you get cancer? All of a sudden, everything is being going into place. What does nicotine do in the lungs? It breaks down your natural resistance. What does, God, uh, what does curry do in the gut? It breaks down your natural resistance. What is, this is a very controversial one. What does non-breastfeeding and drying up your milk do in the breast? It may, and I say may, and don't get, get me wrong, it may cre cre create the irritation which leads to breast cancer, one of the theories. Well, look, I mean, we do see that research is showing that research is showing that one of the highest reduces of cancer the of the breast is in nuns, yeah. in monasteries, yeah. who have milk in their breast but don't ever use it. So you're, you're meant to use your milk. Don't dry up your milk. 
Again, it's a controversial topic, and I'm not arguing with the obstetricians. No, the, the, sci- the science actually, no, the science puts forward that um, breastfeeding reduces your chances of cancer. Yes. I mean, that, that's, that's what, that's no what the scientific journals it. are saying. Now, let's, let's get down to the, to the real nitty-gritty of it. The Sheba Medical Center in Israel showed that if you augment your protection, your own body's protection against cancer, you eliminate the cancer. How did they do this? They took women with stage 3 cancer of the breast, where the tumor had spread to the lymph glands and the brain, and all everybody, certainly in South Africa, would give them six weeks to live. It wouldn't help to cut this cancer out with surgery. It wouldn't help to burn it out with radiology, with x-rays. It wouldn't help to poison it out with cytotoxic drug, because you poison the patient before you poison the cancer. What did, what did Israel do? They took off blood from these third-stage cancer sufferers, and they concentrated the antibodies in those sufferers, because the antibodies were low. They concentrated them a thousand, a million-fold, and then re-injected the concentrated antibody into the cancer patient. <laughs> They're doing this at this very moment in time. And what, lo and behold, what is happening to the person with stage 3 cancer of the breast, the tumor is disappearing, the secondaries are disappearing, the antibodies are protecting you. So we've we've come back to Hashem's defense. But that's a condition that they won't even treat in South Africa. They can't treat it because they won't, the, the medical aids won't recognize the drugs that are used to treat it. They refuse to pay for it. It's about a hundred thousand rand a dose. But when I say that, I open myself up to, again, attack, because some of the medical aids are granting it, but only after much, much strangulation of their throats. A friend of mine was looking at that treatment. And it was going to cost her a million rand a month. Yes, it can. A million and rand no a month. there's no medical aid that I know of that will off the cuff just authorize that sort of treatment. Yeah. But if you do have anything like that, it's worth a phone call to the Sheba Center in, in, in Tel Aviv and talk to them about it. And you may save your life by going there. Amazing. Okay, so... Sure, we're going all around the world in 80 days with this conversation. Well, what, what we're really doing is we're, we're summarizing everything the, you need the to know. The good in medicine, yeah. the bad in medicine, and the intermediate in medicine. And medicine, or certainly pediatrics, is like walking on an escalator, which I always tell my students when I lecture to them. If you walk on an escalator and you walk slowly, you will get to the other end. If you start running around like a mashuganer, you'll fall off somewhere. And this is unfortunately what happens in medicine today. There's all sorts of investigative pathology. There's all sorts of laboratory tests. I don't know how much time we've still got. But just to give you one example, we've got a severe flu epidemic at the moment. And people are running around doing all sorts of tests, doing all sorts of blood tests, doing all sorts of x-rays. All you've got to know is what the flu really is. The flu can only either hit your larynx, which is your voice box. It can hit your trachea, which is the pipe that you breathe through. It can hit your bronchus, which is the big pipes that lead air into the lungs. It can hit your bronchioles, 
which can which are the little pipes that come off the bronchus and it can hit the lung itself. Now there are signs and symptoms. Heather Zar, who's probably she was a formerly of Johannesburg, she's now in Cape Town. She is a, a girl that is probably the foremost authority on respiratory diseases in South Africa. Heather Zar says that you never need to X-ray anybody to make a diagnosis of respiratory infection because it's impossible. How's that? that? It's impossible because when you've got a lot of mucus in the lungs, you get back the same report in most cases from the radiologist. There's peribronchial cuffing, which can either be early pneumonia, late pneumonia, or no pneumonia at all. So where does it help you to X-ray a person that's got mucus in his chest? Interesting. See? So how, Rather how? go by the clinical signs. And this is a program that I did for ETV on the significance of clinical signs in respiratory disease. If the infection hits your larynx, that's your voice box, and the larynx swells, and so when you breathe in, <gasps> you get croup. That's laryngitis or croup. If it hits your trachea, you get pain in your throat. If it hits your bronchus, you get a cough, and you try to get rid of the mucus. If it hits your bronchioles, the bronchioles are the main little organs that swell up when you get asthma, so you get wheezing with the virus. If it hits your lung, you get two signs of pneumonia. The one is rapid breathing. You pant like a little dog. (laughs) And if it hits the lung as well, you get recession. The part of the lung that should expand when you breathe in sucks inwards like a dud hosepipe when you put suction Mm. on it. So here you've got every single sign in the respiratory tract which should tell your doctor what is wrong. You've got croup, which is inspiratory obstruction. You've got pain in your throat, which is tracheal obstruction. You've got bronchial obstruction, which is cough. You've got bronchiolitis or bronchiolar obstruction, which is wheezing. And you've got pneumonia, which is rapid breathing and recession. If you have either wheezing or if you have rapid breathing or recession, you belong in a hospital. 70% of your lung function is gone. But you don't belong in a hospital if you've got croup (coughs) necessarily or if you've got pain in your trachea or if you've got uh, bronchitis. Probably a baby should. I mean, if any of these symptoms are present in a baby, they should be in a hospital. Now, let me tell you that the virus grows on antibiotics. And, and here are Antibiotics we know can't, can treat bacterial and fungal But it can't they can treat, treat bacteria But very often viral, the virus yeah. augments the growth of uh, the, Or antibiotics augment the growth of viruses So what happens November 1960 When I graduated as a doctor 95% of your infections were bacterial 5% were viral 2019 95% are viral and 5% are bacterial. And of the 5% that are bacterial, 0.1% actually require an antibiotic. So if, if one sends off a swab, as you should always do, if you ever contemplate using antibiotics, the first thing the laboratory are going to do for viral swabs, they're going to inject the broth with the commonly used antibiotics. 
because when they kill off the bacteria, the viruses grow beautifully. Now, the same is done in the body. If you willy-nilly put somebody onto antibiotic without knowing what the true pathology is, you may very well stand the chance of activating that virus and making them worse. So it's insufficient to say the person's got a tonsillitis or the person's got no titus. And here I'm going into conflict with a lot of your doctors, and I'm not meaning to uh, demean them. I'm not meaning to criticize them. I'm simply criticizing what they do in my opinion. It's my opinion. It may not be the general opinion. But when you get an article, an editorial in the British Medical Journal, which states, and which is read by six million people a month, in which the editor states, if the world goes on using antibiotics the way it's using antibiotics, we will have no need for ISIS, for terrorist groups, for North Korea, for atomic bombs. We're going to die in any case. Now, that's written by as prestigious a man as the editor of the British Medical Journal. In one of the other copies of the British Medical Journal, the editor says, if you want to bring out the glandular fever syndromes and cause the glands to blow up, put them onto Augmentin for seven days and watch those glands enlarge and watch them develop a full-blown glandular fever syndrome. So don't blindly go into antibiotic therapy. At least be sure of what you're treating, because 90 to 95% of your cases are viral, and the great majority of them will get worse on antibiotics. My name is Kathy Kaler. This has been the Dischem Medical Monday. My guest, an absolute legend in pediatric circles, not just in Johannesburg, but around the world, Dr. Jack Cussell, and uh, just to sum up, if uh, and and I can vouch for this, my kids, thank God, after seeing Dr. Jack, they were off antibiotics for about 20 years, uh, or they haven't been on antibiotics for about 20 years. If your child has a temperature, don't treat the temperature. Do not throw them into a cold bath. Just keep them keep their temperature below 38 walk degrees. Walk slowly on the escalator. Yeah, walk slowly. If they are sick, keep them in bed. Sorry, but they aren't going to be able to go to that party. They aren't be going to be able to swim, go swimming with their friends that afternoon. Your child will survive. And, and the art ha- of medicine is not to prescribe. Yeah, the art of medicine is not to prescribe. So this was the advice that Dr. Jack actually gave me with my kids, and it really did work. One, don't treat a temperature. If the temperature goes above 38, there's a suppository it's called Empiped. Empiped. and stand suppositories. And, and it'll, right, and it'll keep, it'll keep Simply the... Simply to control it. Yeah, to control it. It keeps the temperature below um, your 39 degrees. Or 40. Uh, two, keep them in bed. Three, take them off sugar. Four, go back to the ABCs, apples, bananas, and carrots. That's, uh, that's what they should be eating. All fresh. Nothing preserved and nothing synthetic. Right, exactly. And, um, at the end of 48 hours, your child will either need an antibiotic or they will have built up an immune system, a strong immunity. But at least make sure by taking a simple swab if you're not certain. I don't mean swabbing everybody because it's expensive. The laboratories charge between 1,800 and 3,600 rand a swab. So go by the physical signs that I've outlined to you of upper respiratory tract infection, larynx, trachea, 
and bronchus, they don't need any swabs at all. It's only when your child is wheezing or recessing or breathing rapidly that you do need swabs to determine what, what the cause is, whether it's viral or bacteria. As, uh, as we did mention earlier, um, we are not live today. So, but you are still welcome to send through your questions and I will pass them on to Dr. Jack Hussle. And this opportunity doesn't come along often. So, uh, we, we have to get you back. There's so much ground that we didn't cover. We, we didn't, didn't cover diet. We didn't cover, you know, the, the five to ten year old. You know, if you we, didn't we have cover to get obesity. you back. We didn't cover obesity. Obesity is perhaps the biggest killer in mankind today. And that's what we have to look forward to for next <laughs> we time. We have to have a single killer. <laughs> it's obesity. Well, it's, 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 and it's our lifestyle. It's everywhere. Absolutely. Take so, the example from the crocodile. He eats once a year. He has a proper meal once a year. I think that's a terrible idea. <laughs> I think that's a terrible idea. I think so too. We're going to fresh now. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Jack Hustle, thank right, you thank so you much. Jack Please Jack don't be a stain. Really nice Danger. of you to have me. And if I, as I say, if I've offended anybody, it wasn't Lushen Hura, it wasn't Yatsahura. I didn't mean to do anything like that. I know there are plenty of you that use antibiotics, that get given antibiotics. It doesn't in any way, it doesn't in any way cast dispersions on the ability of your doctors. It's simply what they have been taught. Mir we can teach them something different. That's all I pray for.